Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Eschettino. And today, I wanted to talk about something that I feel um, really cuts to the quick, uh, at least in the United States, uh, but I think globally as well, as one of the major conflicts of the 20th century. Now, when we talk about major conflicts, of course, there are, you know, I mean, <laughs> you bring up, hey, World War One, World War Two. hello, yes. Um, but then you become more localized, because after World War II, there were a number of conflicts, there were a number of what we call proxy wars, wars that were fought by uh, opposing sides that were backed by major powers, okay, um, and, you know, sometimes more directly, sometimes indirectly, uh, but you had conflicts throughout Asia, throughout the Middle East, uh, throughout Africa, throughout uh, the Americas. And so, you know, when you want to talk about something like, you know, the 1967 war between uh, Israel and her Arab neighbors and the 73 war that followed up, I mean, these were major conflicts and they did have a tremendous impact on, um, you know, geopolitics, uh, but they weren't conflicts on the level of World War One or World War Two. Okay, uh, you know this didn't spill over; it didn't smell out. Um, and what I wanted to talk about today, though, were two conflicts uh, that in which the United States was heavily involved. Uh, both of which, also by the way, involved numerous other countries. Uh, even if it's not readily accepted as such uh, today, you know, there, there's just the idea it was American stuff. But both of which played a massive role in shaping not just, you know, the region, and the region was Asia, East Asia, but also um, U.S. policy, U.S. philosophy towards military force. And you know what? Unfortunately, there's a tremendous amount of I don't want to say disinformation, but just lack of knowledge about what went on. And I'm going to talk about these two events. And the two events are what we call the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So there you go. We've got that out there. Um, the United States in the post-World War II era was one of two uh, superpowers. Gone were the days of the old... You know, hegemonic, uh, you know, you had multiple different powers. You know, before World War One. you know, you had Russia, you had Germany, Austria, Hungary, uh, the Ottomans, Italy, France, of course, and, and the United Kingdom. Now, you had these major powers uh, that had agreements with one another, basically, on, well, you know, you take this, I'll take that, okay? Very convenient. Of course, nobody bothered to ask the people they were taking things from. <laughs> nobody bothered to ask the Africans, you know, how they felt about things. But, you know, again, the Europeans really didn't care because they had the guns, they had the big guns, and they were going to do what they wanted. But anyway, the bottom line was that major wars, there were wars that took place, obviously, throughout the 1800s. Um, you know, from the, the, the post-Napoleonic era, there were wars that took place. The Crimean War took place. The Franco-Prussian War took place. Um, the Boer War took place. You had the Balkan Wars took place. 
I know I'm 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 jumping through a little bit of this because you know there's a limited amount of time that I want to to be able to spend on this. I want to get to the good stuff in a few minutes. Uh, but the bottom line was that there weren't any massive conflicts that led to a complete change in the status quo. And then World War One happened, and World War One was the 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 dam which had been leaking for years finally collapsed. And Europe was completely changed. Uh, you know, the, the, the stru- first of all, and if you've listened, by the way, to my World War I episodes, which you should go back and do if you have not yet, um, you know, uh, first of all, multiple empires collapsed as a result of the, the war. Uh, Russia collapsed, Austria-Hungary collapsed, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, Germany collapsed. Uh, second of all... It, it ushered in a new era of who was powerful and who was not. Um, and kind of lost in all this was the United States, because the U.S. kind of showed up, you know, in the last minutes, as Eddie Izzard would say, you know, the cavalry that comes in at the very end of things. You know, and the British were like, you know, bloody hell, we've been fighting for four years here. Um, yeah, the United States, you know, came in at the end. But the bottom line is that, it was a precursor, and, uh, you know, as I believe it was Marshall Falk said, you know, this is not a peace, it's an armistice, ceasefire for 20 years. And 20 years, almost exactly afterwards, of course, World War II breaks out. Now, World War II breaks out, and in the beginning, it's the same guys fighting against one another, a little bit of a change of some sides. Uh, but it's not until 1941 that the war completely took a turn. You're asking me right now, you're like, I thought he said something about Korea and Vietnam. I'm getting there. But you have to get the, you have to understand the basics here. The, you have to get the why this is important. Anyway, in 41, two major things happened. Germany invaded the Soviet Union and Japan attacked the United States. And this caused a major, major reshuffling of the decks, okay? So first of all, um, now Germany was at war with the Soviet Union and later with the United States. They declared war on the United States. And the United States got dragged into the war. The United States had been peripherally involved, helping Britain in some ways, helping other people in some ways, but was not involved directly. And most Americans at the time had no interest in getting involved in the war. I mean, Jesus, they were just going through a Great Depression, People were like, we don't have even money to eat here. How the heck are we going to spend money to build battleships and, you know, cruisers and airplanes? <clears throat> anyway, the long and short of it was, after Pearl Harbor, after the attacks on Pearl Harbor, the United States went all in. And the United States proved absolutely capable of doing multiple things. In fact, if you're, if you're going to uh, ask my humble opinion... Uh, which, whether you asked it or not, I'm giving it to you right now. Um, What the United States did between, uh, let's call it the very beginning of 1942, and the beginning of 1942 and 1945, is one of the greatest accomplishments of any country in the history of the world. The United States, between those three years, essentially did the following. First of all, shipped massive amounts of aid to the Soviet Union. In fact, the joke was we shipped so much spam over there to help the Soviets eat that if they hadn't 
gotten that, the, you know, they would have started that the Germans had taken the grain-producing regions of Western, of, of Western Russia. Well, it wasn't Russia. I'm sorry, my Ukraine and, uh, and Belarusian uh, listeners out there. The Western part of what was then the Soviet Union, okay? The Ukraine, which was the breadbasket of, of the Soviet Union, and Belarus, which is also a tremendously important. Uh, but the United States also shipped massive amounts of trucks over to the Soviet Union to help them with moving things. And that coupled with the fact that the United States then started fully supporting uh, the United Kingdom. And then, at the same time, was launching, uh, by 1943, an invasion of North Africa. Also, engaging the Japanese solo, okay? Having massive battles. I mean, there were battles... Uh, you know, the Coral Sea, Midway, uh, we were fighting on two different fronts, later to become three different fronts once, in 1944, the invasion of Normandy took place. Uh, the United States, you know, single-handedly, basically, really took on uh, everyone. And and now, don't get me wrong, I'm not, for those of you listening to me from, you know, former Soviet states, anyone from a former Soviet state that fought in the war, had someone who did. Um, it is absolutely true. Nine out of ten German soldiers who died in the war died fighting against the Soviet Union. Uh, that's without question. Uh, the United States played a tremendous role in helping to keep the Soviet Union afloat, okay, throughout those dangerous years when they needed supplies to be able to not only feed their people, but be able to move supplies artillery, soldiers, back and forth between things. And this takes nothing away from the Soviet soldier. Absolutely, it doesn't. The Soviet soldier, you know, in, in, in the Great Patriotic War is one of the, you know, pristine examples of a soldier uh, fighting in anything. Um, you know, until they came into German territory and committed war crimes. But anyway, the bottom line is that the United States came out of World War II as one of two superpowers. Gone were the days when there were multiple powers that could actually compete with one another. It wasn't like before World War I where it was like, well, who's going to win? Is it, you know, could, could Germany beat France? Could the UK beat Germany? What about Russia? What about the Ottoman Empire? Can they manage to pull together? After that, there were no question. There were two powers in the world. There was the Soviet Union and there was the United States of America, and that was it. Okay? You were either allied to one or allied to the other, or you took the third-party uh, steps, like uh, Tito in uh, Yugoslavia, Nehru and, and company in India, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt for a while. Uh, but the bottom line was that the United States was dedicated to being anti-communist. Now, here's where we get into the interesting stuff. Not that any of that wasn't, but the, 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 I should rather say the core of what I'm talking about. So, one of the major problems after the war uh, was that um, the Soviet Union was fairly determined that they wanted as many communist countries in the world as they could have. So, for example, in Eastern Europe... You know, and they were like, oh, you know, um, you're going to let Poland have free and fair elections. Of course we are. They can vote for any communists they want to vote for. Uh, yeah, so that was, you know, it was like, oh, that's not what we meant. And it became very obvious that the Soviet Union was determined to get what they could. Now, one of the first places we had a major problem was in, in, in Korea, the Korean 
Peninsula, which had been a Japanese colony. The northern part of the Korean Peninsula was communist. The southern part was not communist. And it came down to a question of, well, what do we do? Well, you know what? Let's hold an election. Those crazy things, elections, they're fantastic. People can be like, hey, I want this to be the case. I want that to be the case. Then I'll vote for it. Except that the North Koreans decided, you know what? We think that the South Koreans would be better off under our rule. So they launched an invasion of the South. They launched a massive invasion of the South. And initially, the invasion was very successful. Um, They were able, within a couple of months, to completely uh, obliterate most of the South Korean defenses, uh, many of which had manned, you know, U.S. forces were there. Um, it was it was complete and total. It, it looked like it was all over, but the crime. They had surrounded, uh, you know, U.S. and U.N. forces in what we call the Pusan perimeter in southeastern Korea. There was a very small perimeter which was still held by uh, U.N. forces, and a large number of the U.N. forces happened to be made of American troops. Now that point becomes one of the great military. Uh, maneuvers of all time. And one of these things that's studied uh, much like the Battle of Leuctra was studied, uh, you know, where, where the, uh, um, the Thebans beat the Spartans through arranging their, their forces in echelon. Anyway, the bottom line was that General Douglas MacArthur, who was a brilliant military strategist, launched a desperate but well, well, well timed and well-planned invasion behind. It was an amphibious invasion behind the North Korean line. In fact, way behind the North Korean line. They landed at Incheon, which is about halfway up the peninsula. And it completely and totally surprised and upended the North Korean forces. And the North Koreans found themselves cut off. They had nothing to do but retreat. And retreat they did. And they not only retreated uh, across the original starting line, but they retreated all the way north. In fact, the U.S. and U.N. forces captured Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, and then came up to the idea of, well, you know what we can do? Why don't we just keep on going and just decide, you know, listen, you you guys didn't want elections? No problem. All of the Korean Peninsula will be anti-communist. But as they got closer to the Yalu River, which is the border with China, communist China was like, listen, we really don't want you near the border. And this is where you get the old, there's a great saying, I've said it many times uh, in my classes, probably said it a few times on my podcast, pride goeth before the fall. MacArthur was like, screw the Chinese, what are they going to do? And as the U.N. and U.S. forces got near the Yellow River, the Chinese were like, well, how about we send about 600,000 soldiers storming across the border? And they knocked the U.N. and U.S. forces all the way back to, again, essentially the starting line. Okay? And so once that happened, MacArthur started getting aggressive, and he was like, well, let's, let's break out the nukes. Now... I know that today we view the use of nuclear weapons as like, what are you even thinking about? 
But you have to understand, my wonderful listeners, back in the day, in the 1950s, the use of nuclear weapons was not really seen as something out of the realm of possibility. Eisenhower threatened to use nukes at one point uh, to settle the situation in Vietnam. Um, it wasn't. It was just seen as, all right, listen, um, we've had bombs that have gotten bigger and bigger. Now we've got the biggest bomb there is, okay? So we're going to use it. Now, I mean, today, fortunately, for the most part, saner minds have prevailed, and we view nuclear weapons as something that it's like, I mean, we have them, but God, we're never using these things. But back then, it was like, well, let's use them. So MacArthur wanted to turn the Chinese seaboard, all of eastern China, into basically a radioactive wasteland. And President Harry S. Truman was like, hey, MacArthur, I don't know if you're aware, but China's communist, right? We know that. And the Soviet Union's communist. And right now they're friends. Later on, they would have some issues, but right now they're friends. And the Soviets have about, you know, 900 divisions in Western Europe. I'm exaggerating, but not by that much. And he was like, if you pull some crap off against them, number one, I'm worried about what's going to happen in Western Europe. Number two, shortly after that, the real question would end up becoming, could the Soviets hit back? You know, we weren't sure about what they had, what capabilities they had. But the bottom line was they had a metric ton of soldiers. They had a ridiculous amount of aircraft, tanks, artillery. I mean, you know, numerically, they were superior. Now, the Air Force... Probably the U.S. Air Force would have had, I don't want to say no problem, but realistically as a historian and looking back on this as a military historian, I think that what would have happened is it would have been terrible on the ground for a while. But over time, the U.S. Air Force, well, it was the U.S. Army Air Corps at the time, but the U.S. Air Power would have been able to defeat Soviet air power. But here's the thing. So the war went on. In 1950, everything was done. But, but it took until 1953 before there was an armistice, okay? There still is no peace treaty between North and South Korea. They are still technically in a state of war against one another, although neither side has shown any interest recently uh, for very good reasons in doing anything. They're both just running their countries. Now, <coughs> we're going to go to Vietnam. Now, Vietnam was originally a French colony, and after the war, the Vietnamese were like, well, war's over, World War II's over, and the French, who had kind of lost before they won, they were like, well, you know what, it's time for colonialism to end. And what you, again, you have to remember is that there was no sense of colonialism ending I mean, guys like Churchill, whom I love, I love him to death. Throw all the hate you want at me right now. I really don't care. I love Churchill, okay? He had his flaws, yes, okay? He had some issues, true. But I think he was one of the great human beings of our time. Anyway, the bottom line is that neither the English nor the French really intended to ever end colonialism. I mean, the Indian independence movement, the movement for Pakistan, uh, the movement for freedom in Southeast Asia. I mean, this was all stuff that came about after the fact. And the French didn't want to leave. And they intended on keeping things. Heck, they intended on keeping Algeria. Go watch the movie, The Battle of Algiers. You'll thank me later for that one. So, uh, the Vietnamese fought against the French. And initially, really kind of appealed to the United States in this whole, hey, you know, you guys have kind of been, you know, anti-colonialist. Like, you know, let's do this. But Truman was afraid that we really needed the French help if something happened in Western Europe. And so we sided with the French 
And uh, then eventually, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, the French were caught up and all but annihilated by the Vietnamese. Uh, and that was the end of things there. And then you had a real big question. What's going to happen here? Uh, North Vietnam was communist under Ho Chi Minh. South Vietnam was non-communist. And so the real question was, well, what's going to happen? So now, in hindsight, here's my issue with the Vietnam War, which the United States was involved with from uh, the mid to late 50s until um, the mid-1970s. Um, in fact, April 30th is 75, uh, when Saigon fell, uh, which had nothing to do with the United States at that point. We've been out of the country for a while. But here's the thing. Everyone looks at Vietnam, and it's a very common thing, and it aggravates the bejesus out of me, okay? Uh, now, I'm, I am, uh, uh, you know, what one would probably describe as a leftist. I'm an intellectual leftist, but my, you know, personal feelings, believe. but I, I still can see both sides of the equation. But here's my thing. It aggravates the bejesus out of me when people talk about Vietnam as, A, a lost war, and B, it was stupid, shouldn't have been there in the first place. Okay, here's where I go ahead and educate some people about this stuff so that the next time you're out there, you're not making a fool of yourself in front of other people. So first of all, if you're going to look at Vietnam from the perspective of geopolitics, the current theory at the time was that of what we call domino theory, okay? So domino theory was, uh, if you know anything about dominoes and not the game, which I used to love playing in Egypt, is fantastic. Still played it recently. Uh, it wasn't that long ago where I played it, a year or two ago. But anyway, the idea of dominoes is more of like when in America where you line up all the dominoes and then like V for Vendetta, you just click one and they all fall down. So the idea with communism and containing communism, containment, which was part of the Truman policy after the Marshall Plan, was that, listen, we have to stop communism from expanding. We have to meet every time communism tries to expand. We have to meet them with full force and show them you will not it's like Gandalf. You shall not pass. Okay? And so the idea was that, you know, when you looked at Korea, North Korea had invaded. There was no question about who the aggressor was. They invaded. They tried to capture all the Korean Peninsula. They failed. They got into a, and Bruce Elfland would love this, Mr. Elfland, my supervisor, social studies, this is one of the first things he he chided me on, I used the term slogging match to describe the trench warfare in World War I. And he was like, how many of your students do you think actually know what a slogging match is? Well, all apologies, Bruce. But the bottom line was that world, uh, Korea, world, Korea turned into a slogging match. And then what happened was the North Koreans were stymied. They could not win. And so when you look at Vietnam, you have to remember that the, the thinking was, well, listen, we'll do the same thing in Vietnam. We'll confront the North Vietnamese, we'll fight them toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and we'll stop them from evading. We'll stop this, because the idea was, if North Vietnam had captured the South, then it was only a matter of time before Cambodia and Laos, the two countries near, right next door, were captured, but they became communist, and then Thailand would become communist. 
And then all of a sudden Burma would become communist. And then India would become communist. Then you'd have two of the, the top countries in the world population would be communist countries. And then the next thing you know, uh, you know, Pakistan would go and then Iran would go and then the Middle East would go. It would just keep falling, okay, as a result of communist victories. And we couldn't stand for that in the West. And we we're like, no, we're going to meet them toe to toe. And so that's why in Vietnam, the United States continued to increase troop levels and to continue to, to pour money and material into it. Now, I want to make something very clear here because this is where a lot of people get into this whole idea. You know, this is the draft burning. Yes, okay, Vietnam did become a terribly unpopular war, all right? A lot of that was because as the war dragged on, a couple of things happened, and I'm going to explain them to you right now and make my argument. And as I always say, listen, if you disagree with me, if you want to argue back about things, by all means, uh, you know, send me an email, contact me. Again, I'm on Instagram, uh, I'm on TikTok, I'm, <laughs> and I have, you can contact me through uh, the Apple, uh, you know, the, the podcasts or through Anchor, Anchor, who I, you know, uh, provide me with my podcasts. But here are the couple of things that happened. Number one, for the first time, you had a lot of, li not live reporting, but reporting directly from the field. So people got to see, in World War II, in Korea, the films that were taken were basically, you know, it's like, you know, let's hear it for our boys in blue, going in there attacking the Nazis. You know, it was basically just showing American soldiers storming across, you know, places and shooting up Nazis and capturing things. All of which happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen. Um, they didn't show the parts where American soldiers got blown to pieces. They didn't show the parts where American soldiers, you know, ended up getting, you know, having their guts ripped out and, and had to fill them in. As Saving Private Ryan in the first 15 minutes of that movie, which is one of the most gruesome things you can watch, um, I always show that and I show um, The Longest Day. The comparison of the two invasions. The longest day, the guys are charging. And I love the movie, but they're charging the Nazi. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hear... And then they throw their gun up in the air and then fall to the ground. Saving Private Ryan, you actually see the fact that, you know, guys lose arms. Guys have their guts ripped out because of, you know, 50 cal guns, you know, sawing them in half, literally. So you started to see more of that with Vietnam. Also, you had guys that were going and that were coming back. And after a while, it started to get to the point where Americans were like, well, what's the deal? Why, why haven't we won yet? And forgetting about the fact that the point wasn't, it wasn't to win. Now, I, I say that in the following way. It wasn't to win in the sense that we weren't trying to invade North Vietnam. The United States wasn't trying to invade North Vietnam. The United States was simply trying to stop the North Vietnamese from capturing South Vietnam. And that's fine, except that it constantly hands the initiative to the opponent. Because it's like in a, in a, in a football match, if you're just like, listen, we're just playing defense here. Our, uh, the whole point is we just have to stop them from scoring. That's fine, but you're basically letting the opponent determine how much attacking is going on. Yeah, you're launching counterattacks and stuff, and you might get some, some chances on goal, but your whole agenda is basically we're going to stop them. Second of all, the North Vietnamese strategy from the beginning, as Ho Chi Minh said, 
was basically, you know, it was the tiger and the lion. Now, if the tiger went after the lion, I'm sorry, the the tiger and the elephant, apologies. If the tiger went after the elephant right off the bat and charged it, the elephant would simply pick up the tiger with its trunk and smash it and stomp on it and be dead. The tiger's agenda was to just try and nip at the flanks, run by, cut here, cut there, the old death by a thousand cuts. And the North Vietnamese strategy from the beginning was pretty much, well, you know what? will outlast the Americans because the bottom line is that at a certain time after so many years and it might be five years and it might be 10 years and it might be 20 years they'll get tired of seeing their young men come back in body bags and they'll leave they'll withdraw okay and that was the general strategy so you have to give it to them for that um it you know it was extremely effective now The United States inflicted severe damage on the North Vietnamese and General Westmoreland, the commander of of forces of Vietnam, you know, who after he had American forces of 500,000, just a few more. We're on the we're on the brink. We're on the brink. They're done. One more kick, uh, you know, to to quote Hitler, was it one more kick and the whole rotten structure will come down. Well, Hitler wasn't right in 1941, and Westmoreland wasn't right in 1968. And what happened in 1968 was that the North Vietnamese, the NVA regulars, and the Viet Cong, who were uh, guerrilla soldiers, launched something called the Tet Offensive. Now, Tet is the Vietnamese New Year. It was considered a time period where, for the most part, everyone kind of spent a couple of days just chilling out, not attacking anyone. But they chose that to launch a massive offensive. Now, during the offensive, during the Tet Offensive, okay, the North Vietnamese basically hit up and down all over the front, okay? They hit over a hundred cities, fire bases. Um, the U.S. Embassy in uh, Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam, uh, you know, uh, Viet Cong soldiers had br- breached the perimeters. And it took a couple of days for the U.S. to get back on. Now, once the U.S. recovered from the surprise attack, because again, it was one of these things, it was like, hey, we're under attack right here. Great, we're under attack too. Hold your positions. We'll try and get some fire over there from a fire base. Oh, the fire base is under attack. Again, it was just hitting so many places. The Tet Offensive was a spectacular disaster for the NVA. It caused Viet Cong to stop being effective as a military force. There were phenomenal casualties. I mean, the, the kill rate for the United States, once the United States ended up coming back onto it, uh, was tremendous. I gotta think, might, some su- suggest that it might have been as much as 10 to 1. However, the psychological effect of the Tet Offensive was something which the United States would never recover from in the war. Because after years of saying, it's over, it's over, it's over, they're beat, the Tet Offensive proved that after the, the military, at that time, many Americans felt, and I'm not saying this is, this is the truth, but they felt they could not trust the military. And they could not trust the government to tell them what was going on, what was the reality. And more and more young boys were coming back either in body bags or coming back with serious 
issues. Uh, in World War II, the average GI, I think, fought something like, actually was in combat, something like 35 to 40 days out of the year. In Vietnam, it was on the lines of like 230 days out of the year. Okay, So the, the pressures were phenomenally more tremendous on U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. And also the fact was that a lot of guys that went to Vietnam, they were drafted, and it was like, well, what are we doing here? What are, what are we fighting for? In World War II, it was easy. In World War II, hell, you went and volunteered. You were like, I want to kick the Nazis' rear end. I want to kick the Japanese's rear end. Um, you know, people understood what they were fighting. In Vietnam, it became a case of like, so why are we fighting the Vietnamese again? What's, what's the deal? As Muhammad Ali famously said, you know, ain't, ain't no Vietnamese person ever called me the N-word. You know, I ain't got no quarrel with the Vietnamese. Um, this was true. And that's why over time, you started to get protests in the United States. You started to have protests that resulted in things like the Kent State Massacre, you know, and then draft car burnings in 1968 Democratic Convention, which basically devolved into mere anarchy, you know, youth fleeing into Canada to avoid the draft. Um, you know, it just, it became Walter Cronkite saying that, you know, we're no closer to winning the war now than we were, uh, you know, however many years ago. And Johnson claiming, President Lyndon Johnson claiming, I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the nation. And he was right. He was absolutely right. Um, you know, the problem was that the American people felt they were being lied to. And at that point, they were like, well, what the hell are we doing here? Why are we continuing to send our young men over there? And women. There were definitely women over there as well. But, you know, let's be honest, as a majority of men, why are we sending men over there? Um, African Americans, by and large, started questioning the fact because, you know, in Vietnam, you could get something called a deferment. Nah, this is, this is a fun one. So if you were in college, or if you had a rich daddy, you could get a deferment, which meant that, you know, it was your turn to go over there and fight, and it was like, oh no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to college, I can't go over there and fight. And then it's like, well, I'm working right now. Oh, you're working at a gas station? Yeah, you can go over and fight. You're not as important as the person attending Wharton School of Business, let's say, or something like that. Okay, And so what you started to see was you started to see poor people in the United States realize that, hey, man, we're fighting this war. Now, even though the majority of soldiers in Vietnam were definitely white, it did start to seem like many wealthy whites especially kind of got out of military service where African-Americans were sent over there. And I have to say, in a kind of... For those of you that know about the Buffalo Soldiers, not just the song by Bob Marley, though it's an excellent song, you know, it started raising questions about, like, well, we're we sending black people over to kill, you know, uh, as they would say, go over and kill the yellow man, you know? As Bruce Springsteen said in his famous song, Born in the USA, which hilariously, uh, today, you know, people look at that. I mean, Reagan played it. I know Trump has played it. It's like, you know, born in the USA. That song is a complete indictment of basically everything that's gone on in the United States throughout the 70s and 80s. I mean, that's the whole born in the USA is, is an ironic chant, you know. When he says, got in a little hometown jam... So they put a rifle in my hand, sent me to a foreign land to go and kill, as he said, the yellow man, 
Okay, obviously we don't, you know, approve of things like that. I'm just quoting the lyrics. But that was the way it was looked at. It was like, you know, you got in trouble, you you jailed. Yeah, guess what? You're going to Vietnam. And you gotta kill the Vietnamese. Why? Why not? You know, they they did this, they did that. And that's where, you know, the dehumanization ended up leading to things like the, you know, the Miley massacres. And and to the fact that a lot of these guys didn't know why they were fighting. And that's why you had tremendous psychological trauma coming back. And then you dealt with the, the double-edged sword of these young men coming back. And number one, veterans of other wars were treating them like crap because it was like you failed to achieve victory. Okay, If you want to see a great example of that, go watch the movie First Blood. It's... It's Rambo. It's the first Rambo movie, okay? But First Blood, Brian Dennehy and Sylvester Stallone. But that's what it's about. And he's a, he's a, 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 Viet, a I'm sorry, Korean War vet. And, you know, there was this idea like, oh, you, you Vietnamese guys, you a bunch of you know, dirt bags, and, you know, the hippies support you in this and that. And, you know, it's it was. It was terrible. Guys were coming back after having been through tremendous amount of conflict, seeing friends die, seeing friends be, you know, mortally wounded, seeing friends have limbs blown apart. And then they came back. And then you had number one, you had the, the left wing in this country, you know, spitting on people. Yeah, as they came in the in the airport, not everyone, don't get me wrong. Again, I'm a leftist as it were, but you were dealing with that. And then you were also dealing with the right wing, treating them like, well, you couldn't win this freaking war. You know, we beat the Nazis, we beat the Japanese, and you can't even beat you know, the Vietnamese, for crying out loud. But again, they weren't set up to win, okay? They were set up to defend, which they did spectacularly. American units won every single major conflict with the North Vietnamese. After 1973, a peace treaty was, was made. And I'm putting quotes up right now. Now, you probably can't see it, but I am. Some peace treaty was made. And then, uh, within two years, the North Vietnamese had managed to take advantage of the fact that the South Vietnamese government and, and military was in disarray. They invaded. They ended up overrunning all defenses uh, and then reuniting the country uh, under North Vietnamese. And that's why today it's Vietnam. The city of Saigon is now Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, Hanoi is still the capital of the North and will always hold a special place in its heart for Jane Fonda. But my the point I wanted to make about this was that a lot of people criticize U.S. policy in Vietnam, and it's easy to do so in hindsight, okay? It's easy to be like, listen, this was never a winnable war, okay? Uh, this was something where they were just going to, you know, keep on wearing you down until you finally got tired and left. But to that, I want to make the following argument. Number one, okay, when looking at U.S. policy in Vietnam, look at it from the lens of U.S. military and uh, and political leadership going into the 1960s, okay? First, you wanted to stop the domino effect. You had not only what was going on in East Asia, but remember that less than 10 years earlier, Cuba had become communist. You had communist movements in most of Central America and quite a bit of South America. You still had communist movements in places like Italy and France, not as strong in some places as others, but the bottom line is that they were definitely out there. So there was this desperate movement to try and stop 
communism from expanding. And with CEDAW, Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, the United States felt they could. And again, in Korea, the United States and, and their allies, they were successful. They stopped a massive military incursion. They beat back the communists. Yes, eventually it ended up going back to, you know, the original spot, the original uh, the line, the point's parallel. But the bottom line was that they had stopped the communists, okay? And if you can stop them in Korea, why can't you stop them in Vietnam, all right? And so to look at things and say that Vietnam was unwinnable from the beginning, I think it's disingenuous, all right, on two fronts. The first front, again, is that it, 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 it takes away from the fact that the United States was successful, and second, it takes away from the fact that in every single major engagement, okay, in the Vietnam War, the United States military was successful. The United States military was overwhelmingly successful. I know you can make the argument, well, we got into body counts and stuff like that. Well, fine, whatever. Listen, we don't even have to get into the idea of body counts as being the determinant factor, okay? Even though you can make an argument that's as good as anything because you're not taking over territory, um, you know, you could have made the argument the United States should have tried to take North uh, uh, Vietnam at the time. There was no intention for that. We were worried about the Chinese, and to be honest, nobody wanted to, you know, start a third world war. We figured it would just be a regional war, which it turned out to be a regional war. Thankfully, there never was a third world war. There were no nuclear weapons launched here and there. But to to kind of say that the American soldier during Vietnam, you know, the problem today is we get this stuff and it's like, oh, they were smoking pot all day long. Oh, they were cowardly. This is that. No, no, no. Um, I won't let that happen. It's not that case at all. The American, the average American soldier, by the way, who, who was drafted in many cases, okay? So didn't volunteer, didn't, maybe didn't want to be there, but fought tremendously, okay, against the North Vietnamese in almost every single, like I said, in, in almost every single uh, theater in there, uh, you know, even if the North Vietnamese were able to overrun certain positions, uh, you know, Americans fought back and, and uh, along with the South Vietnamese forces and defeated North Vietnamese forces. And even in their greatest attack, the Tet Offensive, um, which was designed to just overwhelm them by hitting them so many times, that go look up the statistics yourself. I won't do all the homework for you. Go look up the statistics in the United States losses versus North Vietnamese and VC, Viet Cong forces, uh, you know, it was overwhelming, okay? It was a phenomenal defeat for the North Vietnamese. But like I said, after so long, people started saying, why are we still here? You have echoes of this today when people ask questions about, why do we still have soldiers in Iraq? Why do we still have soldiers in Afghanistan? You know, it, and it, there are good questions about that, and that's something you can debate and again, if you feel that way, you know, that's that's where we have, listen, we have we have elections all the time, you know, we got one coming up in November. So if you're living in the United States and you have an issue about that, go ahead and, and, and do that. Um, one of the other things I wanted to bring up about uh, Vietnam was U.S. withdrawal from the region and U.S. inability to support South Vietnam was also influenced tremendously by the fact that uh, by 1973, President Richard Nixon 
was <coughs> on his way out. The Watergate scandal had completely blown up by that point. It was very obvious that President Nixon uh, had lied, uh, was engaging in uh, several activities on becoming of a president, and he eventually had to resign and Gerald Ford took over. And at that point, the United States, there was the oil crisis going on because of the 73 Arab-Israeli war. It's funny, isn't it? That's the historian's job. And I love it. We look at things and we're like, well, you know what? What happened in the Middle East directly affected what happened in Southeast Asia. Why? The oil embargo and the subsequent American economy going into a bit of a nosedive affected our desire to ship weapons and and replacements over to South Vietnam. And without that, they were no match for the North Vietnamese. The North Vietnamese were coming in there with driving clarity. Uh, This is no offense to the average, uh, you know, ARVN, you know, soldier, uh, you know, South Vietnamese Soldiers fought with heroism. Again, you, you read things, you know, they were overrun in positions. They didn't give up, um, you know, but by the, at the end of the day, uh, they just didn't have the kind of leadership and they didn't have uh, the, the facilities to fight back uh, against them. So with the United States, you know, after 1975, that was it. And people look at this and they say, well, you know, this was a lost war. It was the only war America lost. This is not, this is not genuine at all. First of all, if you want to talk about, you know, a, a war that America didn't win, we'll go back to the War of 1812, okay? So we can talk about that a little bit, all right? And you Andrew Jackson fans that want to come out and talk about the Battle of New Orleans, yeah, well, that was after the fact, okay? But the bottom line was that we were already seeking peace before then because it was a back and forth and they burned down the entire capital. So let's not get too, too cocky about that one. But, um, no, you know, Vietnam, like I said, it's a very misunderstood war, and it's a very fresh war in American uh, minds, because unlike, you know, with World War I, there are no longer um, any surviving veterans of World War I. You literally could not, if you wanted to, go out and find an American who had fought in World War I. World War II, I think it was a statistic I saw the other day was ridiculous. It was like we're losing like three to 5,000 American veterans of World War II uh, every day or on some kind of a regular basis, and it's, it's terrible. Uh, you know, but again, most of these you know, men and women, are, they're in their 90s now. They're going to die. It's just you know, human lifespan doesn't go that way. But Vietnam, I mean, you can have people that fought in, in 1973, 1972, 1970. You've got a lot of people, you know, they're in their 70s, uh, a lot of these guys. So there's still a tremendous amount of Vietnam veterans that are out there. And, you know, I think that that's why we still look at it as something that is is very relevant to us. It's still there. It's still It's still fresh. There are people you could talk to. You know, we're seven years old. They can tell you about what things were like, you know, in, in uh, Quezon, you know, what it was like in Saigon, uh, you know, what happened uh, in, in certain, you know, Battle of Huey. You know, that, that's, it's very relevant. Um, so I just wanted to get that out there and, and talk about how, you know, even today, you know, this still, it still impacts American foreign policy. Uh, because a lot of these guys that were Vietnam veterans are today the people who are running the government. That generation is running the government. So they're bringing with them the lessons 
the hopes, the fears, everything that was involved with it, and and their driving discourse. Eventually, you'll have the generation that fought, you know, in the 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 Gulf War in eighty nine, ninety, and you'll you'll have the generation that fought in you know Afghanistan and Iraq in the early two thousands. You know, they will take over, but for right now, they're not. Right now, it is the Vietnam generation. You know, the the boomers, as so many of my students like to say. You know, the OK Boomers, they're the ones that are guiding policy and they are directed in many cases by the memories of Vietnam, by the ghosts of Vietnam. Uh, anyway, that's what I had to say for right now. Uh, I know this is my longest yet, but I'll tell you, I think that it's very, very important to understand the, the, the impact that Korea and Vietnam had on U.S. military and foreign policy. I've tried to explain that again if you have any questions, complaints, things you want to throw at me, please do contact me. Find a way to do it. You know, like I said, I'm on Instagram, you know, After School History, Antonius Optimus. Um, you know, you can send something online through, uh, you know, the podcast. Uh, but do that, you know, get in touch with me. Let me know if you have anything, if you want me to address anything. Um, I hope that everyone is still being safe and being smart. And in the meantime... I wish everyone a wonderful rest of their week. Uh, Until I talk to you again, my friends, bye-bye.